When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Tracy Koga, and thanks for downloading this podcast from iLikeYou.com. If you can, give us a follow or subscribe. And remember that all the information about the guests in today's episode can be found at iLikeYou.com. Now, let's get started. Hello everyone, welcome to Hugh at Home, I'm Tracy Koga. While I have been feeling very patriotic and a lot of love for my country, Japan, on Sunday, Hideki Matsuyama donned the green jacket and became the Masters Champion and the very first Japanese golfer to do so. He is going to go home and be congratulated, he'll be a national hero and there is rumor he might be the torchbearer for the Olympics. What an incredible year. Well, coming up first, though, I will sit down with author Sally Ito and look more into our own historical family roots here in Canada with the Japanese Canadians. And then later on, Ona Lu will come on the show and she'll talk about her new album, her life here in Winnipeg, and what it means to be writing and creating music during the pandemic. So don't go away. It's all coming up on Hugh at Home. Every once in a while, you get to read a book that really hits home. And this one definitely was for me, The Emperor's Orphans by Sally Ito. And it is a great honor and a pleasure to actually, well, you know, I guess the better thing would be, Sally, for you to be right here in the same room. <laughs> but uh, no, thank you so much for uh, joining us on Hugh at Home. Welcome and thank you for this book. And I know that it deals with a lot of Japanese history, but really, Sally, all families are so alike and I think share the same kind of beliefs and stories, hidden stories, um, secrets. But, you know, once you truly learn more about your family, I think it really truly helps you uh, find out more about yourself. And especially if you do have family yourself, then, right, it, it makes the story complete. So let's go back. Let's talk about the Emperor's Orphans and how it all began for you because it really is quite a, a revelation, I think, in its sense, too, for you. Yeah, well, for me, I, I, I always did kind of, as a writer, wanted to write about my family and the family history. Um, but it was just, uh, it was how to do it. And, um, and I was very conscious that I thought my story wasn't really that important. I thought it was important to tell the story of my Japanese Canadian great aunt and my parents who had been through the war and through it being interned and then um, exiled to Japan. And I also wanted to talk about my mother's family who had been uh, in Japan during the war. And I didn't really think my voice was very important, but as I wrote it 
um, I realized more and more that I needed to be a voice because um, I was the storyteller mm -hmm. and I needed to know, uh, I needed to be part of this narrative. So the book is set up in such a way that there are the important storytellers, my great aunt and um, my maternal grandfather, Toshiro. And then there's me just sort of explaining who they are and how they influenced me and what they thought. <laughs> oh, um, so I wanted to ask, though, a little bit into the history because I just, again, recently found out. I mean, we knew and understood about the redress and the internment, but there was another part of that, too, where the government was ready to ship Canadian, like Japanese Canadians who were born in Canada back to Japan. And and like you say, exiled, and this was a very important part of your book. So that didn't necessarily happen in my family, but I found it interesting in how when they got to Japan, it wasn't, it, they were foreigners, in, in a, yes. definitely. Yes. Yeah, well, the interesting thing about uh, the repatriation policy, as it was called, was uh, that um, people were making decisions because they were dispossessed of their property and they couldn't return to the West Coast. And this was a, a thing that was different between the Americans and uh, the way that Amer Japanese Americans were treated and Japanese Canadians were treated was this repatriation option. And um, it contributed to the, you know, um, to the exiling of people like my grandmother, who was Canadian by birth, and my uh, father and his brothers, uh, who were born in uh, uh, Canada, as, a, as effectively it was it was a kind of exile they were they had really no say in the decision so um you know it was kind of that sort of situation yeah and for yourself too i guess growing up sally if we talk about the way you felt and and your own family life and you talk about assimilation and just fitting in and um you know wearing all the modern clothes and and everything like that and I kind of think about too I mean we did grow up in the exact same era and you know for me um, I, w I guess I, I consider myself fortunate I didn't feel any different but it's you know it's always a different situation for for any other person too as well so for you what was it like for yourself growing up well, you know, I grew up in um, Alberta in the predominantly white suburb of Sherwood Park just outside of Edmonton. So I was quite conscious that I was really the, like, really one of the few Asian kids in my entire high school. It was a big high school. Um, there are other racial minorities there, of course. But overall, I would say that it was, it was more or less white. There were maybe a few uh, black students, a few South Asian students. Um, and there were also other um, Japanese Canadians that had come from Southern Alberta. But I felt like I was in a sea of whiteness. <laughs> and, you know, it, it, you know, you're not really a, you're not really thinking that consciously about it. Uh, but, you know, I as you get to your high school and stuff, you, you do start to notice things, you know, like that. And I, also, I was going to Japanese language school and I was aware that I was always speaking Japanese at home. Um, and so the culture was different at home than it was outside. So there was, all, you know, there was that kind of bifurcated sense of being in two worlds, you know. Yeah, so, I mean, and that's interesting, too, because you did keep up your Japanese, uh, going to Japanese school, learning about the culture, speaking it. Um, so 
what was it or when was it that you really wanted to learn more about yourself and that you wanted to learn more about your, your heritage? Well, I would say it was probably in high school. Um, I, I really sensed by that point that I, I, I needed to, I needed to go to Japan, you know, like I felt like that's where everything was. That's where the, the language was. That's where people that looked like me were <laughs> and people that looked like my mom were. So I was taken to Japan uh, in high school by my father for a two week trip. And after that, I was just, I was just hooked. I, I couldn't wait until I could go back again and, then I did a gap year in Japan, you know, after high school, mm-hmm. and um, that desire never stopped. Like I just, <laughs> I still, I still continue wanting to go to Japan, and um, yeah. So that never that it started in high school and just never really stopped. Yeah. And then you took your family uh, back there. Yes. Uh, what was that whole experience like? Because by then, I mean, the story was almost you know you had all your information almost and being able to share now with your with your family what was that like well that was really interesting because you know I never grew up in Japan I never experienced childhood in Japan Um, but I really wanted my kids to have uh, an experience of that so I took them in 2011 uh, and we went twice uh, in 2007 and 2011 and I had heard that in order for the language to sort of really be rooted in a child you should have them immersed in the language uh, at least once or twice before the age of 12. So I really did have that in mind, and I thought I really wanted to have my children exposed to that. Uh, so they they had an experience that I've never had, which was to go to elementary school <laughs> in Japan uh, and junior high school for my son at that time. And they had a really interesting experience, and they understood what it was like to be mixed-race kid, a mixed-race kid from Canada in Japan in a Japanese school. And I think that was a very unique experience for them. Yeah, I mean, is it? I guess it's like role reversal. Um, what? And I guess you know, on all your times going back to Japan, did you notice a change in the people, or is it always the same? Like somehow, I I've only been there once, and I kind of think that it's almost like you you know, it's frozen in time, and that's you know, they're just the same, very stoic yes. and busy, and <laughs> and and super clean. But um, yes. Have you noticed a change, though, with everything that's oh, happening in the world? <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, definitely. When I was there uh, in my gap year in high school, I would get into the train and everybody's heads were black, you know? <laughs> so I felt like I would, I would describe the stream of head, the stream flowing out of the uh, subway cars and trains as being a river of black heads. And then I, really the next time I went, Everybody was dyeing their hair, right? <laughs> so I mean, you had blue and blonde and pink, and I think this, you know, this is and this is what's so fascinating about Japanese culture too is it's it's kind of always undergoing this change, and and you kind of have to keep going there to to witness that change, and um, and it, you know, and I think maybe for Japanese Canadians who have only been there like once, it's kind of locked in your memory, and there's this kind of sense that the traditional things are what represent Japan. Whereas in Japan, it's just this kind of complex mixing and matching of things. And a lot of the times, traditional things are, are losing, you know, are losing their, um, they're losing their hold on, on Japanese mm-hmm. people. Um, but it, interestingly enough, the Japanese Canadians and Japanese North Americans are looking to the traditional and are, are amazingly keeping it alive. 
um, in North America in a way that it may not be in, happening in Japan. Yeah. No, I, and I think it's uh, learning about all those stories, definitely. I maybe want to just digress from the book a little bit, Sally, and just sort of talk about the issues and the racism that yes. is very prominent right now, especially towards Asians. And it's just, you know, how do, how do you kind of um, deal with it? Um, what, are you, what are your views on it? Obviously, you know, it, it's, if you boil it down to it's, you know, people just don't understand, they don't understand and, you know, they're allowing their own ignorance to kind of come to the surface. But, I mean, a lot of this is, is really awful. And, you know, always it's usually pointed toward elderly, which is a really growing concern. Yeah, I was really surprised by the attacks on elderly people in um, the in the U.S. and I think also we're seeing a lot of it because you know we're all connected on social media and you know I had an interesting sort of moment of like I, I was watching this but I felt you know people were asking me are you feeling any racism here and I think well no I, I, I don't I'm not feeling it I, I, I don't feel it in the same way but then at the same time as I was thinking about this um, I, I'm on the community council for the landscapes of injustice project which is a huge project that's looked is looking at the dispossession of Japanese Canadians. And they just launched their di digital archive. And um, uh, so I was able to go into my family's papers. And when I look at the letters that were exchanged between the custodian's office and my great aunt, and other people were talking about their experiences of going into the archive, you can really see the racism. You can see the bureaucratic antipathy towards Japanese Canadians. You can see how the way the custodian wrote uh, about their lands and how they devalued their lands and said that they were messy and unkempt. And that was not true at all, in fact. Um, but they, they would write it that way so that they could devalue the property and then sell it for um, a, a lot less than it was worth. And, and you know, I, I, and I just thought, wow, that's this. Of course, we come from a legacy of this, and I've just completely forgotten about that. And and um, and th then I needed to tell my kids mm -hmm. that, you know, I said like, do you know that there? This is this is what um, happened to your great aunt and your grandparents. Um, it's 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 it was there in the past, and it's and it's it's rearing its head again. So you, you know, you need to you need to be aware that you come from a legacy of that. And you might think that you're not facing any racism now, but I think you need to also know that you, you, your story has some of that in there. Yeah. And I mean, it is in our nature and culture to, you know, be very passive, stoic, you know, not say, not complain, just go with the flow. Um, yes. This is so, so Asian. <laughs> yes. And, no, and I mean, true. And, true. yeah. And so like, I guess maybe, um, words of wisdom or whatever sally because of, i mean that's your profession words and yes, words yes. can be so good and it's just like oh i wish i said that um yeah because now i mean like if we see it we have to act on it but yeah. on the other hand you know um safety is a factor right and and there's that that part of us we're just saying okay let's you know maybe stick our heads in the sand and it'll all go away yes yes yeah well you know there's it's interesting because it is. I think it is true with Japanese people generally. They, they, you know, they have that saying: "The nail that sticks out gets hammered down," and we have the saying in English: "The squeaky wheel gets the oil." Yeah. Right? I mean, it's it, it, and those two, and also there's a 
there's a in Japanese culture there's an idea that it's better to be like a bamboo which is to sway you know sway <laughs> with the twine and then you won't be broken right because as a as so and I, I I think there's a lot to be um uh appreciated in that mm-hmm. um thinking of, um, in the culture but one thing I I did I did realize when I was working with the landscapes of injustice project was that there were a number of very angry people uh, Japanese Canadians who wrote letters to the government and who wrote letters to the custodian who took the country to, they took the country to the Supreme Court. And I think we, as Japanese Canadians, need to say, you know, yes, we have a legacy of being angry <laughs> and standing up for ourselves. And don't think that, you know, we, we, we shouldn't act on that legacy too. Let's not bury that. Let's, it was there. Um, and now that, you know, now that it's been uncovered, let's look to that legacy and say, this is how we can speak up again, because actually some of the, our Nisei elders did that. Yeah, no, it's so true. And you know what, I guess lastly, or as to wrap things up, for yourself, Sally, I mean, I mean to be able to write a, a family story is pretty incredible, but um, you must have changed a lot too in this whole process. Oh yeah, I did, I did a lot. And, it, it's, and it's continuing uh, all the time, like even having once more again uh, access to my um, my uh, family's archives digitally has just opened up new um, new thoughts, new ideas. Um, I was able to share those with family members, um, and I was able to share them with my children, which is a really valuable thing. And um, and so I feel like it's you can never be tired in a way of your family story because it's constantly evolving. And I realize now my children are mixed race, and that's a whole different. A ball game of identity that I don't, I don't know, and I don't really understand, and I, I, and that's another place I want to explore, you know, with them. Oh, because yes, they are the way of the future, and um, and and we do have children too that are mixed race, and yeah, I think another book on that alone would be, you know, something that I think that everybody, you know, should share and read. And although this is the Ito family history, um, it's anybody's family, I think, you know, and especially when you're going back to the motherland or anything like that and um, to learn more about your culture I think will be the first steps towards anti-racism right learning about other cultures and understanding so hopefully a book like this I think a book like this should be in schools really yes yeah thank you I I, I hope so I hope it gets read in schools too there's an Italian anthropologist who said there's no such thing as race there's only culture and I thought that was a very interesting comment. I think it's so true. And, you know, we grow up with other cultures around us, and we have to be mindful of that, and we have to be inquisitive about that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we might be blunt with our questions and kind of rude, but, you know, we have to have a dialogue, and we have to just not think of them as this, that other stranger that looks different mm-hmm. or that's on the other side of the road or is in some other place, but we're having an encounter with them, so we need to have curiosity and engage in conversation with people like with people other than ourselves almost definitely well it's pretty hard in this pandemic and isolation yeah. but <laughs> thank goodness for zoom <laughs> yes, yes. well it's been so wonderful to meet you sally can't wait for the next book and uh and thank you personally um it was it meant a lot so the emperor's orphans I would suggest getting it. It's a great little read. And uh, once again, Sally Ito, thank you so much for being here.
want to give a warm Winnipeg welcome to Ona Lou and though you are so internationally known I am so happy to know that Winnipeg is your home so my first question to you Ona Lou is give us a little bit on your history and how Winnipeg became your landing place I guess so to speak um, well we we're living in the United States at the moment uh, because I went to college there um, and my husband did too. And we wanted to try living elsewhere. Uh, Argentina has been in a constant crisis since like my whole life. And being an artist particularly is very hard. So we wanted to try somewhere else. And, and we kept uh, meeting people who had lived in Canada or who were living in Canada or who live in Canada and kept hearing these wonderful things. And we, my husband has a cousin here in Winnipeg. Mm -hmm. So suddenly, like, everything aligned and mm -hmm. we felt like it was worth the shot. And we came five years ago and we love it. Like, if anything, like, I've been falling in love with it. Like my husband, for my husband was like love at first sight. <laughs> I think like the day we landed, like his eyes were like shiny and open. I, I was a, a little bit more skeptical. It took a while for me, but I, I love it every day more. Oh, and so let's talk about your time in the States. A, a graduate from Berkeley and wow, I mean, everybody that knows music has heard of Berkeley. How was that whole experience for you Onalu and um, yeah, I mean, you get pretty immersed, don't you, in music? Oh, yes. I don't, I don't know. I don't know about other places, but I think it must be like the most immersive musical experience you can have. Um, just the campus, having so many musicians together, and then um, like such a an amazing offer of, of um, classes, you know, you can learn music from all over the world with teachers that are experts in their fields who live, like who are active recording uh, musicians and just meeting musicians from all over the world and, and absorbing about their music, their culture and getting to create all the time. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. I, I, when I was in Argentina, I studied classical composition before I, and it was such a different experience. You know, it was like a lot of studying by myself and I, it was beautiful. I learned so much, but I think to become the artist I am today, Berkeley was um, irreplaceable, a priceless experience. So commenting on that when you're talking about Berkeley and 
being around so many musicians and like-minded people like yourself, but you said music from all around the world. I think now this has given you the opportunity to, how we say, stick to your guns, but you know, your Latin music and, and your voice and the stories you tell are from the heart. We may not always understand it because it's not in English, but the language of music is universal. And I think now more than ever, we need to be exposed to more different, yes. different types of music from other cultures. Yep, I think it's a fascinating moment in history that we're living with social media and this reach we can have. And I think like I'm a bit of an idealist <laughs> and, and a pathological optimist. Uh, but I think like the way to, to get over and evolve out of discrimination, racial discrimination, mm -hmm. religious, cultural, like I'm, I'm building a world together is getting to know. Like, I, I don't know what I've heard it, but it's much harder to hate someone you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. well, when you know, don't know something, it's easier to judge and to dismiss and, and to blame or whatever. Mm -hmm. But when you connect with, with this aspect, which music communicates this like no other art almost, when we connect to the things that, that makes us all the same, that we all share, you know, music talks about human experience, emotion, those things that transcend completely culture or religion or uh, sexual uh, identity. Or so I think it's, it's a very promising um, what music can do well, in this era. Yeah, well, it certainly is a gift. And let's talk about, uh, you know, your transition from Argentina and then you went to the States, I know, but then from to here now in Winnipeg and, and having a life. <laughs> How different would it be if you had not left Argentina? Where would you be now? Oh, that's a, such a great question. <laughs> uh, thank you. Um, I, on one side, when you ask me that, I think, okay, I would be close to my family and friends who I miss so much. It's so hard for me to, to live far away. But artistically, like since I moved here, I've been able to, to make a living with my music through performing, through composing, uh, through teaching music. And that's simply, like, maybe someone does it in Argentina, but it's, it's really hard. Even, and I am from Buenos Aires, which is a mm -hmm. city that is boiling with art, mm -hmm. but still, like, there, there is not, like, the space for a, a musician to have a good quality of life and make a, life and make a living um, when you are develop, when a developing artist like myself. So... I'm guessing I would be very happy, close to my family and friends, but also maybe more frustrated <laughs> artistically, um, maybe not being able to, to do all I want to do with my art. Yes, and now, wow, no one could predict what we are living in <laughs> now for year two. How have you coped, you and your husband, um, through all of this, you know, pandemic, COVID, isolation, virtual, <laughs> no, no live performing? Well, it's been challenging, um, not being able to visit Argentina. Mm -hmm. I try to go every six months. Now it's been, of course, over a year. Um, but we've, all, we've both have had work, like we've, we're all working. Um, so we, we haven't felt need, you know, and there's been like 
great programs to support arts and support people through this, like in, in this country, which I am very grateful for. So it's been a challenge, but technology, as I mentioned <laughs> in my song, is great uh, to, as, as long as we don't forget to create real connections, we don't stay on the surface. Mm -hmm. But um, through technology, I've been able to still be close and, and share all these challenging times with my family and friends and, and also with my friends here. Yeah, no, it's a, I know we're, it's, no one's written the book about it that says this is what no you one. have, <laughs> this is no, what this you is, have to do. <laughs> this is so, so crazy. Who could have imagined we would no. be in this position? I mean, some people did, but we didn't <laughs> listen to them. <laughs> well, so. and case in point though, a lot of musicians have taken this time and opportunity to write new material, to be inspired in different ways, and congratulations on your beautiful single. I will let you say the title. Okay. <laughs> Let's practice. It's, it's called Bailar de a Dos, which means dance in couples or dance in twos, like dance with someone else. Mm -hmm. And do you want me to talk a little bit yeah, about it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And it's like, um, of course, today it means so much in, in the mm -hmm. literal sense, right? Like, we miss, like, for example, I, I used to dance tango here in Winnipeg with a tango community, beautiful yes. tango community here in Winnipeg, and I'm missing that a lot, and we're all missing, like, actual human contact, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, but in the, in the context of a song, it's also kind of a metaphor of building life with someone else. And I, I wrote this song, actually, f around five years ago, and, and thinking about how, you know, sometimes we are culturally pushed to be like over focused on ourselves our plans success work um our inner peace our um organization our routine blah 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 and and i wrote this song these songs thinking how real happiness is not like all that is good mm -hmm. it's important it makes our life our everyday life enjoyable mm -hmm. but if you don't have someone to share it with, if you're not building your life, sharing your life with other people or someone else or others, mm -hmm. um, that's, it's not enough, right? Um, having it, having these individual things, individualism in the end, is not enough. No, no, and it's so beautiful. And I um, will tease everybody with a short clip, but uh, a lot of scenes from Winnipeg, and I did recognize a lot of the dancers that you had. So it was oh, just like, oh my goodness, like, you know, here you were and it's just like this hidden gem and no, it's a, it's a beautiful little video and it just brought back so many memories of, you know, those warm summer nights when they would have the tango out at the forks and everybody would be dancing and, you know, at, we can only wish and, and, you know, we, we do have hope that yes, one day we will return to that, but mm -hmm. I think it will feel much different. Okay. Yes, yes, <laughs> it's, it's going to be a readjustment for sure. But yes, I, I think or I hope with all my heart that mm -hmm. we'll, we'll get that back. Yes. And that freedom that we enjoyed of oh. getting together, holding each other, kissing each other, traveling <laughs> through the world so. whenever we want it. It was amazing. And um, I, I think we'll, we'll enjoy it more because yes. we understand better mm -hmm. how blessed we are to have that. And yes, we just have to wait. 
Oh yes, it's, I know. And, 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 and act together, right? Mm -hmm. Pandemic showed us that we, how connected we are, how the whole world is yes. connected. And, Something and we had had such a good, hard time understanding, now it's more evident. No. And if we kind of, uh, if I can go back to people in your life that influenced you for your music, uh, you know, I just want to touch on, you have worked with world-renowned artists and Latin Grammy winners. <laughs> and it's pretty amazing, Onalu. I mean, uh, I mean, it definitely obviously shows in your music, but uh, oh, Rosanna was one that oh. individual. I, it's just amazing. And she was a huge influence, like when her very, very big album, um, uh, she, she released that. I was 13, 14 years old, and <laughs> I listened to that album so much. And I had this friend who we love to, we love to sing together. And we would just walk through the streets in Buenos Aires singing out loud all her songs. And at that point, I didn't know I wanted to be a musician or much less a songwriter or an artist. But that no doubt that made a deep mark on how I write songs and how I, it gave me um, a channel, mm -hmm. uh, a way to, an outlet for all these emotions, these feelings and, and yeah, and me, thanks, that was in Berkeley that that happened. She went to, for a talk there and I got to meet her and then she was doing some shows, uh, like a US tour and she's, the most generous, amazing woman. And she started like inviting uh, some of the, of the students she was meeting to perform with her. And she was like, she's many artists who go like, okay, yeah, come may, maybe do some background vocals there or whatever. She was like, no, she invited me to her New York show to sing in a, a duo with her. And she made me choose the song, whatever song I wanted. So I got to choose my favorite song from her. Like who does that? Oh my goodness, like that yeah. must have been like priceless. Priceless, yeah, completely <laughs> priceless. And, and it's a, like a lot for someone that I, who is finding their way in the industry, it's, it's very inspiring to meet someone mm -hmm. who's made it, who has created such beautiful music, who, who, have, who had such an impact on so many people and meet them and see they are great people. I, it encourages, it encouraged me. To, oh. to follow on this path. And no doubt, I think you too, Onalu, would do that to any young woman yes. sitting in the audience for your concert or yeah. whatever. Yes, okay. no. Yes, hopefully. <laughs> I hope someone wants to, and of course, I'll, I'll invite them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to ask you, though, if you could play a song for us. And, sure. oh, and, and before we go, too, so you have your new single out, and the new album is going to be coming out, correct? May 28th? Yes. 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 I'm so going to be releasing another single mm -hmm. on April 30th, mm -hmm. Amore Cronico, Chronic Love, that's the title. And then uh, by the, uh, May 28th, I will be releasing the album. And the so album I'm is called? Super excited. Diamond. Di Diamante. Diamante. Sí. Beautiful. Yes. <laughs> that's the title of the album. And yeah, I'm, I'm so excited. It's been five years since I released music. I've been oh. composing, playing like crazy live mm. and stuff, but I haven't been releasing music. So getting this music out again, it's very important to me. And 
Oh. It helps me keep <laughs> the energy and the, and the patience and the optimism about yes. everything going. Yes, always creating. Well, we can't wait to hear your song. Congratulations, Onalu. Do, do you want me to play Bailar de a Dos or another oh. song or the next release or Ooh. what would you like? Maybe the next release. Okay. Let's do that. Does this sound good? Mm-hmm. Okay. Otra vez una sonrisa amarga y este temblor en los huesos De saber que la enfermedad es igual al remedio Solo tenerte mi amor me hace efecto que adicción irremediable No sé vivir sin lo que me das, esto es incurable Aunque sea mi amor, es bien nuestro este dolor Crónico los dos, enfermos de amor Necesito una gota más de eso que me das Crónico los dos, enfermos de amor No nos vamos a curar, fuego hasta el final Amor Vamos juntos haciendo tormentas, cayendo al vacío, abrazados En nuestro propio precipicio de lo no perdonado Vivimos con el corazón sangrando entre palabras prendidas a fuego En esta lucha hasta las cenizas que solo los dos entendemos Aunque sea mi amor, es bien nuestro este dolor Crónicos los dos, enfermos de amor Necesito una gota más de eso que me das Crónicos los dos, enfermos de amor No nos vamos a curar, fuego hasta el final Amor que soy y si me voy que sea queriéndote que sea queriéndote crónicos los dos enfermos de amor necesito una gota más de eso que me das crónicos los dos enfermos de amor no nos vamos a curar fuego hasta el final
Welcome back to Hewitt Home. Coming up, our life coach, Linda Dostowicz, gives us a lesson on how to show up as yourself. Hey everyone, happy to be here. I want to talk about showing up as yourself in your business, in your business copy, in your emails, how you present yourself when you're speaking, bringing all parts of yourself to the table. That means not hiding. That means not showing up as the professional version of what you think a woman in business is, but it is to show up with all of your human messiness. Now, that is a challenge for a lot of us because we've been taught that very rightly that women in business, women leaders, women in general are judged. We are judged critically. We are put down for our bodies, our having opinions, our politics, our values. So very rightly, we started to hide parts of ourselves out of protectiveness. And, you know, that that was a very good response to a very real threat. However, what you find is that you aren't living your values. You're hiding parts of yourself so that your ideal clients can't find you because you are putting out copy and presenting yourself in such a watered down vanilla version of yourself that people don't really know who you are. They don't really know if they can trust you. They don't know if they want to work with you. So it really is actually a good decision for business to show up more as yourself, to let people see behind the scenes, let people into, you know, your struggles. As a coach, I do not have to be some perfect version of a person who's got their whole life together in order to serve you. I can coach even when things are going wrong in my own life or I'm, you know, having some personal struggle. I can still show up with all of my coaching tools and serve you and help you. I do not have to be a perfect version. In fact, people are drawn to me because they they see, you know, I'm just I just show up as myself. I am not trying to be um, better than anyone. I'm not trying to be perfect. I am willing to show my flaws. And that draws people to me because they think, well, I could be real with her. You know, I could show her the the person that I want to become, but she would accept who I am right now. So being yourself in business, although there are risks and challenges, and it takes learning how to process uh, those very real feelings of, you know, fear of rejection, um, vulnerability, uh, it takes learning how to sit with that discomfort when you put out things into the world that show the real you, it's worth taking that risk because you get to show up and live fully in all of your human messy glory. So show up as yourself and let people see who you really are. We want to give a very special thank you to all of our special guests on today's show and leave you with this question. What family member from your past would you love to have a conversation with? 
and why? We want to know, so send us an email to hello at ilikehugh.com or you can message us on Facebook and Instagram at ilikehugh. But for now, stay safe and healthy, and we'll see you next time on Hugh at Home. tecnológico es sin duda fascinante pero hay algunas cosas que se hacían mejor Thanks for listening This has been a production of ilikeq.com Podcast distribution from the Sound Off Media Company What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's take this outside. A new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's take this outside. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, undercurrent podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.